Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to call this, this uh, sermon the power of Christmas because I honestly, truly, really believe it sounds very, um, you know, fantasful. Uh, fantasful? What is the word for that? It's a good word. Fantasful. That's it. It sounds very fantasful, but I honestly do believe that Christmas has the power to heal the world. I really do. And this uh, passage is why, and others, but this passage is why. Let's pray, and then let's read it, and I'll show, you, I'll show you what I mean. Jesus, thank you for the power of the message of Christmas. Thank you for what Christmas really is and really means. And Lord, through all the glitter and, and lights and tinsel and flashy stuff and commercialization, that we, for all, for as big as we make it, um, it's easy to miss the power of it. It's easy to get distracted. There's so many Christmases that I've blazed through a Christmas without even really thinking about you. So Lord, I, I, am, I love this season, and I, my, I would really love to be soaked in it. I wanna pause on Sunday mornings and think about it and be soaked in it and meditate on what it means until it springs forth joy in my heart. I pray that we could do that together this morning. Show us the power of this hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna read Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven. Sorry, I'm not gonna have it on the screen for you this morning, but I'll just read it for you, or you can follow along. We'll do it old school style. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Here it is. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Literally in the Hebrew, has flashed. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in in the day of, of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from, the to- from that time on and forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Oh, this is the stuff. This is the stuff that eternity is made of right here. Okay, um, I wanna welcome you into the season of Advent. It's a holy season for us as Christians, for us as followers of Christ, and and it demands that we don't do what the culture is asking us to do, and that is to rush through it and go, 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 go. This season actually demands that we be very countercultural and slow down and pause and let the roots of our faith sink into this soil and grasp on and deepen. This is... This is Christianity in its raw form. And so what we're hoping to do on Sundays is slow it down and meditate on this. This morning, we're going to start our Advent season by looking at perhaps one of the most well-known texts about Christmas in the Bible, arguably so, I guess. Um, And we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn one, the power of Christmas. Does 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 it have the power to do anything for our world? Um, I've spent a lot of Christmases. 
I have, I'm a pro, I, you know, I have 41 years of Christmases under my belt. I'm a pro Christmas person. And um, I don't remember a time, a Christmas, where it's so viscerably dark in our world. Um, before when I would hear these Christmas sermons or I would read these Christmas texts, I had to do a lot of stretching in my mind to imagine what a dark world is like. I had to think, okay, theologically, what does darkness mean? And we'll get into all that. And I had, but I had to use those tools to really get descriptive to figure out spiritual darkness and sin and all those theological things. But the, the, the closer we've gotten to now, as Christmases have gone by, it's gotten easier and easier to draw hope and comfort from these, from these verses like never before. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing you know, when you really need it, when you're suffering, it really hits hard, doesn't it? Um, it's one thing to know something in the abstract, but there's something only like suffering, darkness, real trouble that make it real. It's needed. Today we're going to learn the power of Christmas. We're going to learn that it's an unexpected power. That's number one. It's an unexpected power. Secondly, we're going to we're going to turn over on the palette of our hearts and minds the idea of power, salvation being described like a flash of light in the darkness. We're going to play with those metaphors, light and darkness. We're going to look into that a little bit deeper. And finally, we're going to see how to access this power, how it was given to us and how we can access it, how we can have it, how we can become agents of it, how we can share it, how Christmas can go out through us. First, the power of Christmas is an unexpected power. Um, in the first verses, you see this. It, it, you might miss it because they're names you don't, cities that you don't typically, that you read over fast because you don't recognize them. But I'll read it again. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the, la the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor, and I'm sure you recognize this if you've been a, a Christian for a while, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations. And in this we find one of the main ideas that every Christmas passage in the Bible has in, has in common. This is a theme running through all the Christmas passages. When we ask, what is Christmas? What is it really? When we turn off the, the, the sparkling lights and the fanfare and the turn the radio off and all of those things and we ask, what, let's get down to the bare bones of it. What is Christmas? One of the first things the Bible will give you is that it's an unexpected power coming from an unexpected place, coming in ways that you don't expect. God was going to send a savior in ways that the human race would not have anticipated. That is a common theme you're gonna find in every Christmas passage. It's an, uh, it, and that's a big thing for us to cl clue into. He was, not, he was not going to come, in other words, from the capital city, from the spiritual headquarters of the time at Jerusalem, the city where King David reigned in victory and strength. That's what everyone would have expected the son of David to come, would have been coming through Jerusalem, the spiritual headquarters of the day where he would reign and rule in power and strength. Everyone would have been expecting that. But instead, he's going to be, this prophecy tells us, he's going to be an outlier He's going to come from the northernmost obscure outskirts, the fringes of Israel, so to speak, a place where no one would have expected. Even in Isaiah's day, um, it was known, you can see it right there in, your, in the, the last part of verse uh, 1, it was, it was known as Galilee of the nations, quote unquote. And the reason for that is because, well, a Jewish person would say it was impure. It was mixed with a lot of different people groups. It was multi-ethnic. Even during Isaiah's day when all, tri all 12 tribes of Israel were there in the, in the promised land, no up north after the Assyrians invaded, they pulled Israel out, they left some of them there, and they also transplanted um, their conquering, the people they conquered from other nations, they transplanted them there in the northern part. It was very much a mixed type of a place um, with a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different ph uh, philosophies. It was pluralistic. And the more you got to Jerusalem, the more pure Jewish you, you got. Um, therefore, from a Jewish perspective, this was not a pure place. It was a region filled with other ideas, foreign people that defiled the Jewish way of life. 
You had to be careful going there because you didn't want to pick up on any of those ideas from other places. That was the idea. Any leader coming from there, you need to understand, any leader coming from that part of the country would have been immediately suspect. People would have been immediately suspicious of that type of a person. They would have suspected a person's ideas and beliefs. They would have, that, that it would have contaminated them. That the people that they hung up, especially if you grew up there, what kind of kids did you grow up with? What kind of families did you, inter, did you interact with? Um, and we see this in Jesus' time. Do you, remember when, do you remember when Philip told Nathaniel about Jesus in John chapter 1? He said, paraphrasing, he said, hey, I think, we, I think we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel said, oh, really? Where's he from? And Philip said, he's from Nazareth, you know, northern Galilee. And immediately you get the response from Nathaniel, Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? Imme- immediate suspicion. And, you know, and it's been downplayed before. It was from kind of a backwoods podunk place. It's true, but the most alarming thing wasn't that it was removed. The most alarming thing was that it was pluralistic. Those people lived in that region, and they probably have polluted this guy's mind. He doesn't have pure Jewish belief. So already, and, we, you know, we do the same thing. We do this. If you're, um, if you're, for example, if you're a political conservative living here in Seattle and you travel and you meet someone for the new t- first time and you say, hey, I'm from Seattle, typically they think, oh, you're liberal, right? Right out of the gate, you're liberal. Or if you go, if you're from Texas and you come here, well, certain part, maybe not Austin, but other places in Texas, and you come here, people typically think, oh, you're, you're conservative, right? We do that. Um, we do that with a lot of things. Oh, you're from the east side. Oh, you're from Seattle. Oh, you're from the... We immediately fill in the vacuum of what we don't know with our own preconceived stereotypes and ideas. That's what we do. The same thing was happening here with, with Jesus. And this is, like I said, this is the first message of the power of Christmas. Christmas is about hope coming in ways and from, and from a person that we don't expect. Jesus, here's the, the point, Jesus was not born into a comfortable home. He was born in a feeding trough. You know, we, we, we like to sanitize this. You know, we sing away in a manger and it gives us warm, fuzzy feelings that Jesus, this little baby, cozy, you know, and, and the wool of the, and the sheep are around him, keeping him warm, looking at him adoringly, and there's a light from heaven, and, you know, everything's sanitary and cute and cuddly. That's not, that's not, that dilutes the power of the Christmas story. He was born in a feeding trough in a manger. It was dark. It was cold. There was no room for him anywhere else. People, in other words, people were not neighborly. They weren't letting them in. The best they could do is say, well, we've got to, you can give, I mean, can you think of it? Can you imagine if someone came to your door, pregnant, she's giving birth, and you say, well, shoot, I don't have any room, but we have a, we have a maintenance, we have a maintenance shed in the back. And that's, that's the kind of, the, that's the dark, cold, hospitality-wise climate that we're talking about here. He was not born into a middle-class, wealthy family. He was born a peasant. He was born very, very poor, and I don't mean like American poor. I mean like impoverished, extremely poor. He was born with a lifestyle where, you, where they could not assume that they were gonna that they were gonna have food for that day. I, I mean, can we relate to that? I mean, I don't think anybody in here maybe can. I, I've, I personally, I've been poor. But I've never gone a day assuming that I may not eat that day, ever. I've always known in my mind, I mean, I'm sure I'll figure out something. I'm sure I'll eat somewhere. Part of that is because I live in a land of plenty. I know it'll show up. Food at some point will find its way to me. I'll, I'll figure it out. They didn't have that. They didn't have that. Um, he was not born surrounded by dignitaries and important leaders or, or social influencers. He was born surrounded by shepherds who were the lowest on the pecking order, socially speaking. He was born um, socially stigmatized. He was born to a pregnant, unwed, peasant teenage girl. 
okay? Because, and because she got pregnant before she was married, she would have lived a scarlet-lettered life and a stigmatized life Along with the baby that she bore, that baby's whole life would be stigmatized and scarlet-lettered. And we see that insult thrown at Jesus in his adult life. Jesus would have been labeled a bastard, his dirty secret. If Jesus was around during our time now, there'd be all these documentaries on Netflix or YouTube saying the real story of Jesus, what you don't know, his real past. He was born out of wedlock. Scandalous, and in that culture, even more so. Even we could probably handle that. In that culture, it was that was intense. He was he was people were against him from the start. In other words, my point is Jesus had none of the markers the world looks for to tell to tell you this will be a successful person. He had none of those markers. He wasn't a Kennedy or a Bush, or a Clinton, or someone that was, came from a family of, with a legacy expecting this kid to be great. He wasn't any of that. He wasn't someone that walked around with a halo on his head, that looked somehow special or really good looking. He wasn't taller than anybody else, but any of that. In fact, the, the Bible throughout, in fact, Isaiah 53 in the Servant Songs talks about how un attractive he was physically, how normal he looked. He wasn't ugly to the point where he stood out that way. He was just a normal guy. That nobody that would have guessed. He had no halo that marked him out. He wasn't a Saul who was head and shoulders above the rest, you know, taller and handsome. In other words, your gut would not, when you, when you have met Jesus, your gut would not have immediately told you, based on, those, on the markers we usually use, your gut wouldn't have said, this guy's going places. You would not have thought that. You know, we, we have that. When we meet certain people, we think, oh, this person, wow. They're going places. They're charismatic. They're good-looking. They're, they're humble. They're, they're all of these, these things. They're people follow. You know, there's people that just want to follow certain people. Jesus wasn't, you have to understand, Jesus was not that on purpose. That was not in the plan. And here's the main point of Christmas. The, power, the point of Christmas, the Bible is telling us that power was happening in the world. God was sending the greatest saving power into the world that it had ever or will ever see, and nobody saw it. That's the Christmas story. The greatest saving power was injected into the world, came into the world, and it was unnoticed for the most part, by and large. Nobody saw it. No one noticed outside of angels having to say, go to this town. A star having to show the way. A choir of angels having to bring attention to it. So, I mentioned earlier that I think the power of Christmas has the power to heal heal our world. How does this first unexpected power, this element of it, how does this have the power to heal our world today? Well, if you embrace, if you understand, and you meditate on, you let this first idea grab you and grip your heart, if you embrace the true meaning of the power of Christmas, if you embrace this first theme, at the very least, it can do a lot of other things, but at the very least, it has to change how you, how you regard people who don't have the markers of greatness in your life. It's got to change how you think about, how you treat, how you interact with the other in your mind, the people that are on the fringes, the people that you don't naturally get along with, the people who make you uncomfortable. That was Jesus. He made people uncomfortable. Even as a baby, he made people uncomfortable to the point where he was hunted. He had to run. He disrupted things from the moment he came. And a lot of it was because he wasn't expected. He wasn't the leader that they were expecting by any means. He came in weakness. It has to change how we treat people that we run into, those on the fringes. Um, Who are those people? Again, 
this is very countercultural, even when it comes to Christmas. Right now, you're going you're to watch Christmas specials on TV of all the most beautiful people the world can possibly produce, singing the most talented people the world can possibly produce. The best statesmen are going to address the world. Me and my family wish you. I mean, it's all about that. All these stars and celebrities are going to endorse certain things. And those things, it's fine. But I'm saying it's hard to, it's hard to hold on to this first point of Christmas in the midst of, in the milieu of all of that. The hype, the, 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 the fireworks, the lights, the dancing, the beautiful people, all, the songs, all of it. How do we hold on? Who are the people that that culture will not think of? Name some people. The poor, I'll start it out. Very, the homeless. Or um, maybe I'll say it this way, the um, homeless who are criminals living in that park. The disabled. The disabled, right. Who else? Canceled, yeah. Those who have been canceled, yep. Cancel culture, yep. Who else? Who makes you uncomfortable? I have to name names, but in general, who makes you uncomfortable? Bus drivers? Oh, bus riders. Yeah, they would probably say bus drivers. <laughs> yep. Yeah, bus riders, absolutely. Maybe people that think different, differently politically than us. Uncomfortable. Okay. Conservative Christians. Yep. Liberal Christians. Right. Yep. Absolutely. People you feel threatened by. And so here's the thing. How do you regard, here's the question that, that Christmas asks. It begs you to ask. How do you regard people like Jesus? It's hard for Christians because we think, well, I love Jesus. He's been so sanitized. But you need to understand, the way he was introduced to the world was very uncomfortable. He came as someone you would, you would have not necessarily wanted to be around. And if you did decide to be around him, it would have come with a cost. It wouldn't have been that you just were inclined to it. You would have been like, oh man, I'm drawn to follow this guy. But if I do, it means I have to... He said it himself. You have to leave your father and mother to come follow me. Foxes have nests, birds have, or foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I don't have a place to lay my head. We call that homelessness. Jesus didn't know where he was going to sleep all the time. How do we regard people like Jesus, people from nowhere, people without, people without the credentials of greatness that we mark as great people? People who don't have the right accent, people who aren't from the right race, people who aren't in the right political party or whatever it might be. See, it means much more than, and, and you have to understand, it goes for, Christmas is pretty radical and it goes further than this. It means much more than just tolerating somebody. It's much more than just tolerating them and thinking to yourself that you're such a great person because you're tolerating somebody that you don't think is so great. Christmas is at the heart of the Christian mission movement. You need to understand that missionaries, Christian missionaries went out with this. It was, this, this is what makes Christian missions different than colonization, different than imperialism. Colonization and imperialists, they go to use their greatness to conquer more of the, to conquer more of the world. To take advantage of, of poor people by exerting their strength and to conquer more and, and, and to maybe raise those people up, but only to get, to get more of those resources. Whereas, because of Christmas, Christians, Christian missionaries went out and said, you are precious human beings, made in the image of God, people that I can help, but people that can also help me. I can learn from, and we didn't seek to, Christians, the Christian, the great, I'm talking about the great Christian missionary movement. Sure, there's a lot of abuse out there. 
But the greats, the great Christian missionary movement went not to take people out of a culture and make them a culture that they weren't, but to take, elevate them out, but not so much that they, that they lost their cultural identity. People became Christ, you know, Asian Christians, African Christians. They didn't become, as the, as the charge to us, the unfair charge to us goes, they didn't become, you know, we didn't use, some did, but the, the, what missions are known for, the real history behind the core of the, the missionary movement, it wasn't to make them white Anglo-Saxons like us. It was to go and serve a people and learn from people. William Carey. And others that didn't that actually went and, and wore what they wore. They didn't come to change, and change them into something else. They wore their clothes. They ate their food. They learned their life. Why? Because you're precious and I have something to learn from you as much as I, as I, as I have to, to teach you. That came from Christmas. That came from Jesus leaving heaven to, to stoop down and become the weakest because of Christian, Christmas, Christians' missions went out and said, you are precious human beings made in the image of God. And there was a humility in Christian missions of the gospel. Um, in other words, the, mess, the first message of Christmas is that true power stoops. I love what um, C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, everywhere, listen, it's one line, but you gotta think about it. He says, everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. I'll read it again. Everywhere or every time you see the great entering into the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. Lewis is saying that you know that something is really great, is really high when it can come down. That's when you know that something is really great. It can, enter, it can enter into the lesser. It can sympathize. It can humble itself. In other words, you're strong enough to be weak. That's the test of true strength. You're strong enough to be weak. You're secure enough to be vulnerable. And that has the power to heal and fracture this world if we lead with Weakness, vulnerability, humility, it shows how, how secure we truly are. It has the power to heal the world. Christmas, this first principle, has the power to heal the world. In other words, um, as, one, uh, I, as one person said it, um, Adolf Hitler could never understand Abraham Lincoln. But Abraham Lincoln can understand Adolf Hitler because Abraham Lincoln's the greater. He can understand what it means to be sinful, but in all of, his, all of his pride and all of his power, he could not understand what it meant to be a great leader like Abraham Lincoln. That was Lewis's point. And we live in a world where it's all about power, credentials, who I am, my legacy, what I can do, overcome, self, especially in America, self-made people, toughen up, go after it, take care of it, don't be weak, be strong. We live in a steady stream of that. This is what, especially for us men. This is what it means to be a man. You be strong. You don't back down. You figure it out. Jesus showed up and turned it all upside down. He came. The king of the universe came in weakness, in squalor, in poverty. His birth was not noble. It was ignoble stigmatized, scarlet-lettered, scandal. It wasn't clean. It was messy, dirty. It was raw. How can we not reckon with that first point without it affecting how we treat ourselves and treat others, okay? Secondly, this power is described as light in the darkness. Look at verse two. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The Hebrew is really fun to read this passage. Deep darkness means um, the land of dark shadow, the, the dark shadow, literally. Um, 
It's a, it's a word in the Hebrew, that compound word, deep darkness, that actually pairs darkness with death. Isaiah is trying to get a, a, your mind to think of both ideas in, this, in, in one. And when it says a light has dawned, it literally means you're, 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 if you're thinking in Hebrew, you're thinking of pitch black darkness and then all of a sudden a blinding flashing light just boof, shows into it. It's supposed, it's meant to, it's intentional, intentionally written by Isaiah that way to hearken your mind back to Genesis chapter 1. Where in the beginning, God created the world and he's going to make life. But what does he start with? How does he make life? What's the first thing he says? Let there be light. It's the same idea. There was darkness. It was formless. It was chaos. And all of a sudden, a light came in, came into being. That's the idea that Isaiah is trying to mark us back to that. And you'll find that in ancient ancient literature, especially the, the Old Testament, the Jewish canon, is what scholars are now calling, it's hyperlinked. It points both backwards and points forward, and it's like a snowball. The more it, when it revolves around and the subject comes up again, it's got more strength this time. It like builds as it goes, as you go through the scripture. It, it uh, puts more meat on the bones until it becomes substantial, until, and here we are at Advent. God created the world in Genesis. He said, let there be light. But look at the... But you know what happened. Mankind rebelled against God. And at that point, death, or Isaiah is saying, darkness came over, came into, into the world again. Confusing darkness to where in Acts chapter 17, as uh, Paul is talking to the Athenians in Athens, he's arguing with them on, on, on Mars Hill. He describes mankind as groping about blindly in the dark. That's how he describes humanity. That's how he describes our world right now, groping around in the dark. That's what we're doing. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for hope and all of those things, but it's like, you know, we're bumping into things. We bump into this. We can't, we have some sense, but not full, but we're confused. That is what the Bible describes our world, darkness. And then this passage, look, how, look at how um, Isaiah describes darkness. After he says that we're in, deep, we're in the land of deep darkness, he goes on to describe it. And look at some of the things that he says. He says in verse 3, he says, You have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people at harvest, as warriors rejoice. Like, in other words, we're in conflict. We're a people at war. And when... This hope comes, we'll rejoice because we've won. But it presupposes that we're in a great battle. Look, what, look at the other metaphors he uses. As warriors, when they divided plunder, for as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and burdens upon them. In other words, this world is a world at war. This world is a, to live this life is to live a yoked, burdened life. Uh, you know, the... the Christian uh, classic, Pilgrim's Progress, picked up on this metaphor. There you have a man named Christian who has a great burden on his back, uh, Bunyan wrote. A great burden on his back. In other words, what it means to be born into this world is to be born into burden, into yoke. If you, don't, if you want a, a very honest, raw example of someone looking at this world, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's looking at this world without the lens of faith. And, it, and there he says this is, it's just meaningless, a toiling under the sun. That's one of the things that he says. To be born here is to toil, to be burdened, and, and for nothing. You, you, you're born, you learn, you work, you work, you get old, you can't work, you sleep, you eat, you die. It's nothing. Meaningless. It's a burden. He goes on, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Look at this. To live here means that you're oppressed. By very anthropologically in a fallen world, to be human means that you are oppressed. You're oppressed by maybe not politically or economically like the Israelites were in Egypt, but you're oppressed by suffering, pain. 
your, yourself, your unwanted behaviors that you can't quite stop, your, you know, your selfishness, your pride, other people's bad behaviors. The world is crazy. There's tsunamis, there's earthquakes, there's famines. It's an oppression. In general, in the Bible, darkness and death go together, and this is some of its descriptors. And one of the things that the Bible will say is that we are in darkness. And across that backdrop of darkness, of groping around in the dark, of confusion and oppression and war and struggle and all of those things, Isaiah prophesies a meteor light coming across the, the, this black, dark scene saying, a, in, like I said in the Hebrew, a light has flashed, a brilliant light in that place has come, has come. What is the light? Well, verse 6 and 7 tells us. Look at verse 6 and 7. Look, so he's saying... Up until verse 6, he's saying there's going to be hope, rejoicing, there's going to be life again. Why? That's, look at verse 6, he says, for or because to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the answer to this darkness that the Bible is describing. This insoluble problem of meaninglessness and toil and oppression. How does the Bible, how does God respond? By giving a son. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's an everlasting reign. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom established and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and on forever. What does this mean? So much. So much. First, this is, because we don't have much time, this is this, this, is this son that was given is God in the flesh. This is unique to Christianity. You need to understand that no matter what anyone may tell you. <laughs> a lot of people will say, well, you know, God coming as a human is, not, is actually, you find that in a lot of different cultures. Uh, yes, but not like this. You know, people can use that blank statement, but you go and look into it, go look at Greek mythology. Look even before that. You can look back into some of the more ancient uh, religions that were going around in the ancient Near East. They had stories, but not, not like this. Not where God himself, they had stories of God coming down and having sex with a woman and having a, a child that way, a demigod. Not like, that's not this. It's not the same. This son this text tells us, is the everlasting Father. This text is telling us that this Son is divine. They're all titles that, that can only be given to God. And two of them are outright, straight up saying that He's God. Two of them are heavily implied. But first, He's the everlasting Father. That means that He's the, this child is the source of all creation. He's the uncreated creator, and yet he's born. A child who was born is God, Isaiah is saying. There's nothing like this claim in any of the other major world faiths. So this person is obviously human because he's born and he's a child, but this person is obviously divine because Isaiah says he's mighty God. Everlasting Father, mighty God. Jesus Christ is the God-man. And that means so, so much for us. And I don't have time. I mean, it means like 300 things. <laughs> but I, I, I can't go into all of that. But, I, but I, here's what I think would mean something to us today. First of all, he's human, which means he's the God who suffers. How did Jesus come to save you? How did Jesus come to save me? See, we, we as Christians in this culture, we skip to the end. We, we start at the beginning. He was born to die. We skip 
the horrendous suffering in the middle. It's all one package. Why did the gospel writers, if it was all about just the death and resurrection of Jesus, why did they take painstaking time to write detailed accounts of Jesus' life? One of the reasons for that is to show you that Jesus took on humanity. He took on suffering and took on the worst form of suffering at the end, culminated on the cross. He was tempted. He knows what, he knows, knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be oppressed. He knows what it's like to, um, to be a victim of injustice. He's innocent. He was declared to die in an, in an unlawful trial. He knows what that's like. God knows what it means to lose a son. He went through all of that and more. Every temptation, every struggle, every hardship. So while Christianity may not necessarily tell us what the meaning of suffering is, it may not tell us exactly what the meaning of suffering is. Christianity does tell us what it can't be. It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that, you know, as, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? I should have written this down. Um, John Stott. John Stott. No, 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 it wasn't. It was Elizabeth Elliot, maybe. No, no, it was Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> Sorry. It was Dorothy Sayers, for sure. But she said, this is the God who took, who, who, uh, he, took on, he took his own medicine. She said, if he's the one that, if he is the one, I'll grant, let's just say, let's just say that he is the one that caused all the suffering and evil in this world. Well, look, he's the one that came and drank it and took it all on himself. Therefore, she would say, I don't know what it is. I don't know why he would allow suffering and pain and evil in the world, but I know what it's not. I know what it isn't. It can't be that, that he doesn't love us. It can't be that. Just logically, it can't be that. There must be another reason. There must be another a purpose behind it. We may not know what that is until we get to heaven. Like Job, the ultimate sufferer, the ultimate, you know, Jesus is the greater than Job. All of the Old Testament stories point to Jesus. Job suffered. Um, the whole point of, you know, there's different grades of suffering in the Bible. That's why I love the Bible. The Bible um, shows us the complexities of suffering. It doesn't just give us one example of that. It's multi-layered. But by far, it spends the most time on Job because um, Job's suffering was what we could call quote-unquote meaningless suffering. In other words, we can't see a reason for it. And Job couldn't either. And even at the end, God shows up at the end of Job at, you know, Job, he loses all these things. He doesn't know that there's a council in heaven and all of this stuff going on. He loses everything, loses his family, his own health, everything goes. And then the rest of, you know, for a few chapters, he pretty much um, questions God. Why are you doing this? I, you know, basically, he says, I feel like, God, if we were on trial, I feel like I could win. <laughs> I feel like I could come up with a pretty good case about why this is not fair. And then Job's friends come on the scene and they offer a really, you know, you know, well, a very simplistic answer of suffering. Well, clearly you're suffering because you've done something wrong. <laughs> you know, the, the typical simplistic answer that does not help. You should just repent, you know. Don't send them to the, to the uh, hospital to help people. You know, don't send Job's friends. And Job says No. And God even says, no, behold my servant Job, he's righteous. He hasn't done anything wrong. In other words, there is a kind of suffering that comes upon people that have done nothing wrong to deserve it or that is disproportionate to what, how they've lived their lives. And at the end, Job says, why, 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 why? God shows up and doesn't answer the question and yet God, Job is completely submitted and says, okay, my mouth is, I take it all back. I want to retract all my statements. You are good, you are good, you are good. But God does not give him the answer. We'll get into this in two Sundays, the idea of suffering. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, and I know I almost should after I just set that up, but I'm not going to do it. 
If you want to learn more about suffering and death, come back in two Sundays and bring your friends. <laughs> We're going to talk about suffering and death for Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> What's that? Everyone wants to know. Seriously, absolutely. Here he comes. Jesus comes. He's the ultimate Job. He goes to the cross. He dies on the cross. He's forsaken by his father. And you know what it says in Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion? It says that darkness encompassed. Darkness fell on the land. Darkness, death. And the idea is that Jesus came and he took on the darkness that you and I deserved. He experienced um, refusal into God's presence. Remember he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would be invited in. He took it upon himself. That's what Dorothy Sayers meant. It can't be that he doesn't love us. He took it on himself so that we could have access to God. It means he's come to end. And here's the question that we've got to ask ourselves. Is Jesus strong enough to take on this world? Is he strong enough to take on this world? Really? Is he strong enough to help you through the darkness that you're going through? Is he strong enough to pay for the, to, to be worshipped, even when you don't understand the reasons for your suffering? Is Jesus worth that? Is he strong enough for that? We need to understand, in a way, Christmas, Christians, when, when Christians come to Christmas, we're not saying hope has is, hope is come, and therefore we're naive to all the suffering and darkness going on in the world. Remember what I said about Hebrew literature. It points backwards and forwards, and it keeps going forward and forward. Jesus is the light, but he was an inaugural light. He inaugurated hope and peace. It started it, but we're still waiting for another advent, are we not? We're still waiting for the second coming where he will come and consummate true peace. Um, okay, let me... Go, let me try it this way. Let me try this angle. Remember in Genesis where God says he made light, but there was no sun. Uh, the sun didn't get, God didn't create the sun until day four. And people are like, why is that? It's, a, you know, it's unscientific. It doesn't work. No, no, no. He was pointing to something very important there. God is light. John picked up on that. God is light. And if you go to Revelation chapter 21, I think I wrote this one down. Yeah, Revelation 21 verse 23, it says, and the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it. Talking about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. When it's all said and done, the end of the age, this, it's the same as in Genesis. In other words, it's not a mistake. It's buttoned up. The, the discrepancy in Genesis is buttoned up in Revelation. It says the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and his lamp is the light. In other words, well, you know the sun is, is they, they know the sun is wearing out. You know that. And you know when the sun wears out, when the sun wears out there will be no um well i think we i think that i think they i think i read that the, the earth's temperature will drop to like 400 degrees below zero in like three days and there will be no more photosynthesis giving us an oxygen supply on the earth without light there's death that's the thing and the bible says do you understand the sun is going to wear out. Everything's going to wear out. I'm the light that never wears out. I'm the light that's coming. We're going back to the beginning. We're returning to Eden, except not just that. It's going to be greater than Eden. Why? Well, here's one reason that you might be suffering. Why all this in between? Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Adam and Eve were innocent but they were not sanctified. I'm going to let you think about that. Adam and Eve were innocent, but they were not sanctified. And what does the Bible say is the only thing that can shape you and make you into a sanctified person of greatness? Pressure, suffering, heat. 
And if you think about that, that means there is no such thing as, as suffering that's meaningless. It all has meaning. You're going somewhere. You're going to a place where light, right now, Jesus has come. He is the light of the world, absolutely. But we're still experiencing, the sun's still wearing out. We're getting sick. Omicron is on the loose. And there'll be more, and there'll be more, and there'll be more. Our bodies are going to wear out. You still struggle with bad habits and sins. There's still things you can't quite master yet. We're suffering. We're in the crucible. We were being shaped and formed to the day where the, the light will win. The consummation of it all will come. And we won't need the sun anymore. The reason God made it with light is because we don't, Eden didn't need the sun. We have the sun, S-O-N. How do we get this power? Last point. How do we get this power? Because here's the thing. You understand something here. Jesus is the light. A light has come, Isaiah says. And Revelation 21, there will be light that will swallow up all darkness. We won't need a sun anymore. The glory of God will be our light, right? But now we're in this, we're in this middle ground where, uh, where scholars call it the... the, the uh, the already, and we're in between the already and the not yet. We're in this really weird place here in this world. So in a sense, we Christians are still waiting for the next advent. What happens in the meantime? Well, Jesus came, and you remember what he said to his followers, to his disciples? You are the, say it, you're the light of the world. You are Christmas. You are the lights that shine. You are that flash of light in the dark places that you walk into. Do you know that? Remember what he said? What's really dangerous for us? He gave it, that, came, that beautiful title came with a, with a stark warning. He said, you're the light of the world. A lamp put on its stand. Nobody lights a lamp and, and then shields it. And then he tried it from another angle. He said, let me get you, give you another metaphor. You're the salt, of the, salt of, the, of, the, of the earth. But what good is it if it loses its saltiness? In other words, if you're here on this planet in 2021 and you're shielding your light, you are good for nothing. You're not fulfilling your, and I don't mean good for nothing like, as in you're not going to heaven. I'm, what he means by that is you're not fulfilling your purpose, your use. The reason you're here in Seattle in 2021 is to be a light, a flashing light in the darkness. That's why we're here. But if you don't speak, if you don't live a certain way, if you don't love, if you don't go out and talk to vulnerable people in a vulnerable way, if you don't live that kind of a vulnerable Christ-following life, you're not shining your light in the darkness. You understand? Jesus was saying, you, you're, see, a lot of us think, oh, it's so sweet. We're the light of the world, as if we, don't have, we, we can't even help it. He's saying, no, you, you control the amount of light you're shining into this world. In Matthew 18, Jesus talked about it as the keys of heaven and hell are in your hands, church. You have a, we have a responsibility to shine. How do we do that? Well, first, and we're almost done. What time is it anyway? Oh, we're getting there. <clears throat> How do we do this? First of all, we receive it. Notice, let me just stick with the text here. Verse six says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The good news of Christmas is that this is a salvation that is a gift. We tell, this is how we came into it, isn't it? We didn't, did anybody here earn Christianity? Please say no. <laughs> did anybody here, because of your credentials and your family upbringing and your legacy and all of these other things and how your stature and your crazy intellect and all of those things. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, not many of you are smart. 
Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are very strong. Why? Because it's following the gospel. God chose the weak things of the world to put to shame those things that are strong. That's how we shine our light. Not by pretending that we're not weak. Not by pretending that we've earned it and we're strong and look at us. We shine our light by saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I'm broken like you. Maybe my brokenness might manifest in a different way, but it's brokenness still. When the fall, when sin hit the world, it was like a grenade, a bomb that went off, not like a, not like a sniper rifle. It was like a boom, and we all, we all might have come out on, in different ways, but we all, we, all, we all got wounded, all of us, every person in here. Some people are prone to addiction. Some people are prone to pride and self-sufficiency. It's a, it's, a, it's a shrapnel fest, see? Others, it's just trauma. <laughs> Christians, we, 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 we enter, we advent, we enter into the world through our weakness, not through our strength. That means the moment we come in with this idea that you, or with a, 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 a vibe, you've got to become like me. That's a problem. In a sense, people need to be, know Jesus. They need to become like you in the sense that you've accepted the great, this free gift of God. Sure, in that sense. But I mean with the air that I'm somehow fixed and better now and up here and you need to figure out. We, we start with, and maybe we have gotten a lot of things figured out, but we start with, we enter into the world with, we advent with our weakness and that is how we let our light shine. One of the ways. Another way is we abstain from the corruption of the world. The Bible says, come out from among them and be you separate so, they, so that they may glorify your, the Lord in heaven by your good works. We're also called not to be uh, goody two-shoes or anything like that, but to show a life that is an obedient life to Jesus is a life worth living. It's just wise. We're supposed to exude peace. Listen, you're going to lose your peace if you keep indulging in sin. You might be saved, you might be a Christian, but you're going to be a miserable one. Christian sinners are some of the most miserable sinners you'll meet because they've got too much of Jesus in them to enjoy the sin, and they've got too much of sin in them to enjoy Jesus. It's just a miserable, miserable place to be. And that's not going to shine a light. No one's going to say, man, I'd like to sign me up. <laughs> you know, No one's going to do that. Instead, they want to see people that are just as broken, but that are obedient, following Christ, heading in the direction, and, and having fruit in their life, and peace, and abiding in the Lord. That's the meaning of Christmas. And it's a received power. It's a gift that we receive that bears fruit in our lives to do certain things and not do others. To work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That means be Christmas everywhere you go and at all times. Work it out, work it out, work it out. The power of Christmas, it has the power, it does, through you, the lights of the world, to change the world. Think of yourself as a, a light flashing in the darkness when you go to work. Think of yourself as a light flashing in the darkness when you minister to your spouse, when you interact in your marriage, when you decide to be patient with your kids instead of getting frustrated. Think of a light flashing in the darkness. When you decide to do something that you don't need to do, to sacrifice for someone else, over and beyond, think of yourself as a light flashing in the darkness. You are the light of the world. The world is out there groping around, <laughs> bumping into things, hurting themselves and others. It's, it's, that's how it describes. And Jesus comes and says, you're the light of the world. I came as an example 
and by how you suffer. By how you suffer. George MacDonald, one of my favorite writers, George MacDonald said, Jesus didn't come to suffer so that we don't suffer. He came to suffer so that you can suffer like him. Because Jesus' suffering brought redemption. Jesus' suffering was the most powerful suffering, the most redemptive, salvific suffering ever. And it goes on through you and me.